welcome to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. This season of the podcast is produced by the Future of Truth, which is a project based at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute. It explores what truth is, where it's going, and why it matters for democracy. The project and the podcast are both made possible in generous funding from the University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. The podcast features discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the cultural and political role of concepts like truth, fact, and information. Today, my guest is Bonnie Honig. Bonnie is the Nancy Duke Lewis Professor of Modern Culture and Media and of Political Science at Brown University. Bonnie works at the intersections of political theory, democratic theory, and culture. She's written broadly on traditional topics in political philosophy, while also examining the political significance of film, drama, literature, and more. Now, I invited Bonnie on the program today to talk about some of her recent work on democratic criticism and democratic repair. Hi, Bonnie. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, thank you for joining me. How are you today? Very well, thanks. That's fabulous. Um, so I, I recently revisited your um, 2017 book. Uh, you've published or finished several since then, but I went back to look at your 2017 book, which is titled Public Things, Democracy in Disrepair. Um, I was prompted to look at it again in light of some of the discussions going on uh, in Washington, D.C. recently uh, among politicians about the word infrastructure and what exactly counts as infrastructure. Uh, Now, in that book, uh, I think you make a compelling case uh, for the thesis that democracy needs what you call public things, uh, that is, um, a system, an infrastructure, so to speak, of sites and spaces and services and, well, things uh, that are and are seen as public or as, you know, sort of public property or common um, Your view stands in sharp contrast with what I take as the prevailing view that infrastructure serves only to facilitate activities that are not fundamentally matters of democratic citizenship, activities that are often regarded as not public, but as private, Um, things like business and commerce and recreation and this sort of thing. Um, Can you explain your view about the importance of public things for democracy? Sure. Thank you. Um, It's a great question and a timely one, as you point out, with reference to the debate about infrastructure. I think one of the things we see in the debate about infrastructure is that if people are committed to the idea, although not necessarily the actuality of minimal government, then they will minimize infrastructure's importance to democratic life because in the absence of such minimization, infrastructure is something that democracies commit to. Um, as part of uh, the common. Uh, But let me backtrack and answer the first part of the question, which is what are public things? Public things are things that we share and that put us into relation with each other. Ideally, they do. Of course, we can deny that. But when we're on a highway together, when we're in a park together, alongside each other, not together, but alongside each other, we're aware of the non-privacy of our existence, of the non-isolation of our existence, and importantly, of the non-sovereignty of our existence. Whether we can enjoy the park or the highway or uh, the communication system partly depends on who else is using it and how they're using it at the same time. 
many of us know that we should act differently when we're in public than we may allow ourselves to do in private, which is a way of acknowledging the non-sovereignty of being among others. That's an important kind of lesson that a lot of us need in an age of increasing neoliberalization and privatization, say, over the last 40 years. It's good to be reminded that we need to sort of act in a way that shows concern and consideration for others. And that reminder can, of course, bleed into our politics as well, the idea of having concern and consideration for others. Infrastructure is just what enables all of that. But it's also often, I try to make a point of this anyway in public things, that it isn't only the good stuff. You know, infrastructure is prisons. And for those of us who might be on the side of abolitionism in the debate about uh, revisiting our carceral system and reconsidering how we manage those issues, uh, infrastructure, the question of infrastructure is one that implicates us. And so prison, prisons are part of our democratic infrastructure and how we think we ought to go about managing questions of criminality or lawbreaking or transgression uh, are questions that are pressed on us by how the current prison system operates. In other words, we need, even when prisons are privatized, they're still acting in our name as democratic citizens. And so they, as material sites, interpolate us into responsibility for what is done in our name. And all public things do that. You know, the Central Park example is a lovely one and it makes us feel good, which is why I often try to add prisons and sewage management as well, <laughs> because those are things that um, have an impact on our life in common. Um, whole populations in this country are sometimes criminalized. Many of them are subjected to pollution by the way that our uh, system of public things operates. Um, and we're implicated in that and responsible for it. And I feel that a good way to think about public things is that they call to us to be responsible for their management and their impact. They're often asymmetrical impacts on us. Right. And can I just pick up on that? And um, so how important to the idea of public things is the seeing others take responsibility for a commons, for example. So I, I live close to a, a park in the center of Nashville that oddly has a full-scale replica of the Athenian Parthenon in the middle of it. Um, and so, you know, I go walking there, you know, a couple of times a week and um, there are all kinds of people using the park. And I'm sure that um, uh, many of them, uh, given in, that I'm in Tennessee, many of them are not politically allies of the things that uh, I uh, am in support of and all the rest. But um, not only is it a commons that um, people seem to be enjoying together, even if they're enjoying it alongside one another, um, but also um, I've noticed sort of <laughs> watching somebody pick up trash um, from a common place. Um, it's, it's a, it, it, it has struck me that, um, that the park can be a venue where you can see um, other people display their virtues in ways that you might otherwise not. And they're displaying virtues in um, 
the activities they engage in uh, for the sake of taking care of something that is common. So th- you emphasize the, you know, we're together, you know, we, we, we see one another alongside one another. And so we understand that there are ways in which we should behave uh, mm-hmm. when we are in public that we wouldn't um, uh, hold ourselves to you know, requirements. We wouldn't hold ourselves to in private. And that's certainly an important thing. I'm just asking you, like, is it also important that you see others sort of live up to that expectation that um, when you're in public, you know, you pick up litter, (laughs) Uh, you care for, you know, you care for seeing somebody else care for what's public has a democratic function too, right? Yes, absolutely. And I think what's the important point there is uh, we don't see what they're doing in their backyard um, or in their living room. And so one of the things that public things provide us with is the opportunity to perform civic virtue together as well. Um, So not just to be considerate of each other, but to be aware of each other exercising care for the world, who is what Hannah Arendt calls it. Um, So yeah, I think that's a really great example Uh, because there is, again, where I think trying to crawl out of 40 years of neoliberalization, self-interest, privatization, and when we see others in what seems to be a non-self-interested way, practicing care for the common, um, that's an elevating thing. And uh, it sets uh, certainly a good example for others. And uh, it also reminds us that some people, because this is how it is in a democracy, some people leave their trash behind and other people (laughs) pick it up. And to focus only on the former and not the latter is a loss to our democratic aspirations. Good. And I take it that it's also then just to pick up now on the the public things that are not so um, uh, uh, pleasant uh, to look at. Um, so thinking about the, the carceral system, um, the extent to which it's part of the public practice to keep these uh, practices and even the physical sites hidden, um, hidden from view, um, uh, I guess on your view, then it's, it, th- that's a democratic failure, right? If we're going to have uh, this massive system of incarceration, we ought not uh, be able to afford ourselves the luxury of not having to be reminded of it. Is that right? It certainly suggests an indication that people's sensibilities would be offended. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think there's an admission there that something, if something needs to be hidden, that it's wrong. Um, and that uh, it's not something people would take pride in. Um, And there are many public things like that, including, you know, our actions overseas very often are things that are done in our name by our government, and many of us do not uh, always take pride in those either. Uh, Although, and many of them are also hidden from us as well. Uh, But I think think it's also important to think in this vein about how how public things are used. So it isn't just that some of them are good and some of them are odious. Uh, It's also that even the good ones can be used to somewhat nefarious purposes. So I'm thinking, for example, of how the highway system was used sometimes to break up uh, burgeoning black neighborhoods and to create a kind of apartheid of white cities and then ex-urban suburbs 
which uh, sort of separate them separate by separating them through a kind of highway system. A lot of the national transportation system uh, operated in that way. There are many examples, uh, some of which were made public by Secretary the um, I'm sorry the Secretary of Transportation Fox under Obama made a point of uh, arguing at the time, showing at the time the history of Ferguson. Uh, the city that had its uprising in 2014 was a product of the use of highway construction as a kind of apartheidist tactic. Um, so public things, you know, uh, infrastructure sounds really good to many of us, uh, but it, they've also, you know, if it's public, it's available to be enlisted in lots of different ways. And that's something that we need to be arguing about and holding government accountable for in a democracy. Right. And I guess that another um, uh, sort of real straightforward example is um, public monuments, um, particularly Confederate monuments in the South, which, um, you know, if you've seen the maps of when these things were built and how they were built and how it was decided where they would be built, (laughs) they clearly are intended to have an expressive function uh, to a particular audience about um, their status as citizens often and their safety as citizens. Is that right? Yes. And I think it's quite clearly a way of identifying uh, belonging and uh, circumscribing public space as privileging certain bodies over others and making some uncomfortable to be there and others feel quite sovereign in those spaces. So when I was speaking at the beginning of our discussion about the importance of the feeling of non-sovereignty in public space, this is one of the implications of it, which is that we are alongside others who we might not otherwise necessarily know in our neighborhoods, our families. That's one of the important gifts of public things that we become aware of the different languages, the different people, the different styles, the different ways that people have of occupying public space. And we welcome that, even though sometimes it's fractious. Right. So this is a nice segue then, because um, as you were just saying, sort of public things and the decisions around them and um, their, uh, their existence, their maintenance, uh, these are also occasions for, um, critical thinking and for discussion and debate and for, um, various other kinds of activities aimed at holding accountable or holding to account, we might say, um, you know, those in power and representatives and governments and all the rest. So um, I wanted to shift just slightly to uh, a kind of question that I think engages some of your uh, more recent work, including uh, some forthcoming work about um, feminist criticism. Um, But this is a broader question about criticism as such. Um, So one optimistic, I'll admit, thought is that... um, uh, the American polity uh, is uh, attempting to recover itself. Uh, and um, it's often a very, um, you don't have to scratch very um, deep beneath the surface of some of um, President Biden's public statements to sort of discern that, 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 that theme of uh, recovering and repair and getting back to normal and uh, doing things better and certainly um, uh, doing things differently from how the previous administration had done them. Um, 
Now, it seems to me that part of the um, process of recovering uh, a democratic polity um, uh, it has to involve, you know, pretty honest and earnest um, social criticism. Um, so th- the recovery that the country is uh, trying to achieve um, will require, you know, critique. Um but I take it that part of what the country is, part of what America is trying to recover from, at least uh, uh, in the more local sense, um, is, you know, four years of, you know, a disparaging attitude towards democratic government as such, um, you know, calling it a swamp, for example. Um, so the worry is that the kind of social criticism that democracy needs in order to repair and recover um, will also fuel that very cynicism that it's trying to recover from, or it will fuel forces, cynicism, disparaging forces um, that are easily harnessed um, by those um, who have more authoritarian and autocratic uh, ideas of what our society should be like. Um, Do you see a worry that efforts at repairing democracy by way of critical activity can backfire in that way? I do understand the concern. I also think it's one that we should not overly concern ourselves with. Good. And the reason for that is that I think all the evidence tells us from the last four years and from the 35 before that, that there really isn't anything that we, meaning people who are interested in democratic citizenship of either party, can do that will not be available in some way to be perverted, corrupted into an anti-democratic argument by the other side. Um, So sort of anticipating the misuse of our words, internalizing the criticisms that will come, all of these things empower our opponents and disempower us because You can never find the right sentence that they won't hijack in the wrong direction. Um, So I think one of the strong things unanticipated by me, I'll admit, about how Biden is occupying the office of the presidency so far is that he is not reactive and that he has a positive, productive agenda to which he is fastening himself. And at the end of the day, it won't be the arguments on Twitter or the bon mot on some news program. It will be his proven success, if he's so lucky, um, at uh, sort of ticking off the ambitious items on his agenda. And uh, government will not be proven as a good thing through argument. It'll be proven as a good thing. I don't want to say by delivering services because that's not all it's about. Um, But it will be proven, uh, its virtues will be proven as it were uh, by way of uh, 
a legislative achievements and also adjustments of there are many things that you can do that are not legislative when you're leaving the government adjustments of tone seeking to uh, represent everyone collectivizing uh, the country in the ways that Biden has been doing so far I think have all been very very positive and I do want to say one thing that's really that was really strikingly strange to people under the last, uh, well, we'll call him the former guy, um, <laughs> is how every meeting, you know, public meeting began with a kind of, you know, collective uh, performance of deference. It's a pleasure to serve. It's my honor to serve. I'm so I'm so pleased to be able to be part of your thing, you know, whatever it is. And um, and that kind of. Uh, uh, deference and obeisance are not evident now. In right. in fact, what is evident is people shouldering a shared burden, people working on a common agenda. It's not per se uh, deferential to a leader, um, but instead uh, sharing a vision. Um, and I think that's really important. I think it's it's a very important difference. Um, in the in the latter mode, there's going to be more criticism, more argument, more deliberation, more toing and froing, and I think very strongly that rather than worry about how all that criticism can exhaust people and make them you know think poorly of government or give the Republicans something to say about the non unity of the party, I actually think it's really important to embrace that as a sign that we are a democracy, that we have differences, that we fight them out, that sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. That's That can be an intra-party uh, practice and it can be an inter-party practice. And it's fine. It doesn't, you know, disunity is not, uh, that is not a sign of disunity. That is a sign of shared purpose with differences of opinion about how to go about achieving the common goal. Good. That, that all that all sounds um, uh, right. Not only good, but right to me. Um, so let me with with with, with the time you've been very generous with your time. So I don't want to uh, uh, um, uh, take too much uh, than 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 I should. But um, I, I guess I'm just wondering now. Um, so if, as you say, and it seems right to me, just as a, a strategic point, right that. Um, the when the when the government not only delivers in that sort of brute crass sense, uh, but when the government sort of recovers itself and and sort of starts functioning like a democratic government should, um, that that's politically potent and um, uh, a good way for things to recover from the previous administration's. Um, uh, um, well, whatever the previous, whatever we want to call what the previous previous administration did. Um, why do you think that the Republican Party doesn't see that point? I mean, it seems that um, they've lost their nerve. Um, after the election, there was a lot of talk about how they might have to, you know, put um, the previous Republican president um, behind them and move forward. And um, with each passing week, it seems that they're um, more tightly now tethered to, um, to Trump and Trumpism than they were, say, in February. Um, what, what, do you have any thoughts about why that is? Why they've reverted in that way? Is it, is it just that they're, that they're out of strategic options? 
I have a couple of thoughts. Okay. The, first, the first thought is they've made a calculation of some kind that may have to do with fundraising. It may have to do with feeling secure in certain seats that have been gerrymandered so that no matter what they do, they know they can count on a certain electoral outcome, at least in some places. Um, there, uh, you know, there may be all kinds of things uh, that I couldn't guess about that have to do with people feeling like they really have no choice. But I don't want to spend too much time on that possibility. And the reason is that I think this is in many ways best seen as the denouement of a series of choices that have been made by the Republican Party since 1980. I see. So I would strongly uh, think about what has been happening in the following way. The first thing that I wrote when Trump became president came out on inauguration day. And I think it was called something like the president's house is empty. I honestly don't even remember anymore what it was called, but it was about, um, it was a kind of public things perspective on how to think about the fact at the time that it was said that Trump's wife, Melania and son Barron were not planning to move to Washington. They were planning to stay in New York city. At, in the end, they did move the following June. They stayed there just for the first uh, first quarter of his term of his first of his term. Uh, but um, but at the time, no one, everyone acted like it was perfectly fine for that to be the case that they had a choice that they didn't have to move to the White House. Um, and I wrote this piece that I wrote because I found it quite shocking. It was going to cost millions of dollars to create a separate. Uh, infrastructure of security for them in New York. Um, it was going to cost millions of dollars to ferry him back and forth to New York to be with the family, ostensibly. Um, it was going to cost millions of dollars that were going to go into their pockets because security was going to be housed at Trump Tower and they were charged rent. Uh, for the Secret Service was for using, you know, em uh, apartments that were available to be rented for their security. And so no one seemed to be concerned about that. And that was in 2016. And the reason no one was concerned about it was that we'd had 35 years of thinking that opting out of public things like public schools, public housing, public anything is freedom. Everyone should have a choice. And so here they were exercising choice and no one had anything to say about it. But there is housing available to the family of the president. It's called the White House. It's a kind of public housing. It is a public thing. And I do remember that one of the first strong impressions I had of Trump entering into the office was his announcement that the White House was a dump. It was, yeah. <laughs> he didn't, you know, he didn't have, it didn't have any value to him or attraction to him at the time. So that's the first thing that happened. And the second thing that happened that I think if sort of completes the cycle of this is uh, the last thing that happened is the attack on the Capitol, a public thing that was, you know, I don't really want to use religious language, but was desecrated with blood and feces and violence uh, on January 6th. And to me, these are bookends of this presidency. They're two versions of the same thing, which is just a complete disdain for anything public. Um, and an interest in using it to get as much as you can get out of it and then throwing it away when you're done. Now, what's also important to me in the book Shellshocked, which is about our experience of the Trump presidency, is that this is not new. 
that even though what we experienced during the Trump presidency was in some ways more shocking and more degrading of democratic political life, at the same time, it was completely continuous with the Republican agenda of neoliberalization and privatization, of treating public things with disdain, of looking what you, for what you can get out of them, of selling them off as if they weren't the family jewels. Um, in other words, of just treating them in terms of a kind of cost-benefit analysis as if they don't do the important symbolic and cultural work that I argue they do in the book Public Things. So I just think that's, you know, one is obviously such a benign-seeming example that his wife and his son don't want to move into the White House, but I think that ben- the, precisely the benignness of the example can now be seen to be quite voluble. Um, It kind of passed below the radar of our attention in a way. Nobody was worrying about it excessively at the time. And then uh, arguably the denouement of that attitude is visible in the attack on the Capitol. So to be clear then, uh, or to help me get clear, so the Republicans are um, the... The, the kind of fealty now to um, uh, to Trump and to Trumpism is a is not might not just be a kind of you know sort of strategic calculation about districts and uh, uh, um, campaigns and the rest. It is the um, uh, you know it, it's the 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 coming home to roost in not to use Hegelian language, in full awareness of itself, right? of, um, of a set of attitudes that have been shaping the, uh, the party for, you know, since the 80s. Is that right? Yes, that is what I think. And I also think that, well, maybe another way to put that point would be to say that given the commitments that they had made over the preceding 35, now 40 years, They do not have a point on their moral or political compass from which to resist this takeover. So it isn't, in other words, just that they're being, that they're fearful or that they're making a strategic decision. It's also that they gave up, if they ever had it, the positionality from which they could be critical of this. In fact, I'm certain from watching and reading the news that when they consider uh, resisting the takeover of the party by Trump, that they do so from calculations of self-interest and strategic reasoning, um, not because they're concerned about the future of democracy. I'm not talking about any particular person. I'm certainly not trying to attribute motives, good or bad, to people like Liz Cheney. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm just suggesting that the party as a whole has stood for an antipathy to public things for a very long time and an anti-government attitude. So I don't know from where it would find the resources, rational, normative, affective, to resist um, the complete and rabid instrumentalization of everything that we've seen through the Trump years. Bonnie, that's a a, a really keen observation and uh, a, a, a suitable place um, to, to to wind up our, our discussion. Uh, thanks so much uh, for talking to me today for the Why We Argue podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure. 
And thank you, listeners. Uh, You've been listening to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. I want to thank, as always, our podcast team. Toby Napolitano at the University of California at Merced handles our sound. Elizabeth Della Zazera of the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute is our communications coordinator. And Drew Johnson handles research for us at University of Connecticut. I also want to thank uh, especially uh, Matt Gregelia for his creative inspiration. The podcast is produced by the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute's The Future of Truth Project with generous funding from the University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. Thanks for listening to the podcast and bye for now.